The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Perhaps the greatest story of all time is the story of a little shepherd boy who walks into a valley to face a nine and a half foot tall giant by the name of Goliath. Everybody's heard this story because it's a story um, that's become actually a metaphor in our world today. It's a metaphor that's told by business leaders. It's told by coaches and, and players on sports teams. It is, without a doubt, the greatest underdog story of all time. But it's a story that is much more than just simply a metaphor because it is an actual event that happened in our world more than 3,000 years ago on the other side of the world in a little place called the Valley of Allah. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Take out those Bibles that are in the seat back in front of you. We're going to read this story together, beginning in verse 1. We're going to talk about it as we go through. 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, says this. Now the Philistines, they gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Dominum between Soko and the Zaka. Verse 2. Saul and the Israelites, they assembled and camped in the valley of Allah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. So at this time, the nation of Israel is under the rule of King Saul. He is the leader of, of God's people, the nation of Israel. And on the other hill, on the opposite side of the valley, are the arch enemies of the Israelites, the Philistines. And the best way to understand the relationship that existed between the Philistines and the Israelites is actually to think about Star Trek and Captain Kirk and the Enterprise and the Klingons. Not Deep Space Nine, not the next generation, not Voyager, not any of those things. Just for those of you who are old enough like me, if you remember the television show on Channel 50, Star Trek, the original TV series, because in the life of the nation of Israel, the perennial enemies that they faced were the Philistines. They were the ones who kept raiding the Israelite cities. They were the ones who kept the Israelites constantly living in fear and anxiety of what was going to happen next. And so picture this. On the northern hill of this valley is the nation of Israel. Their armies are dug in and camped in. And then on the southern ridge of this other side of this valley are the, the Philistines, and they're entrenched in that hill as well. And those two armies are just sitting there staring at each other for weeks. And they aren't able to attack the other army because to attack the other army would mean that the attackers would have to first race down the side of the hill that they are camped on through the valley and up the opposing side, being open and vulnerable to attack the entire time. And so neither one is able to attack the other. They are simply deadlocked. Verse 4, a champion named Goliath who was from Gath, he came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, which is about 125 pounds. Verse 6, on his legs he wore bronze greaves, and there was a bronze javelin that was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. In other words, it was thick and long and heavy and meant for stabbing and not for throwing. Its point 
was iron, and it weighed 600 shekels, about 15 pounds. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not, he phrased, the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, then you will become our subjects and serve us. Now, on the surface, this arrangement seems absolutely impossible and ridiculous for us to understand. But what this was, was the Philistines' attempt to break the deadlock that existed between these two nations because of the geography of where it is that they were fighting. And what this was was a tradition in ancient warfare that was called single combat. And single combat was actually used all the time to settle small skirmishes and small disputes between two opposing forces. It was a way to, to declare a victor or to win a battle without incurring the massive casualties that would actually come from all-out war. Now, normally, normally the entire fate of a nation would never, ever, ever rest on single combat. But in this situation, the Philistines, they are more than happy to put that on the line because they know that their champion is a giant who is almost 10 feet tall. And this whole situation leaves Saul and the army of Israel in a horrible position because they have no good options at this point. They, they know that if they engage in a full-out frontal assault, they will be absolutely decimated as they race down that valley and up the opposing hill. And at the same time, there is not a single person in the entire army of Israel that is willing to go down and face this champion in single combat. Look at verse 10. Then the Philistines said, On this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Verse 16, for 40 days the Philistine came forward every evening and every morning and he took his stand. So Goliath came forward day after day taunting the armies of Israel, taunting Saul, and Israel needed a champion. And so naturally Israel looked to their king, King Saul, and they looked to King Saul for a couple of reasons. First, because King Saul was their king. But also, because we find out in the scriptures just a little bit before this, that when King Saul was made king, he was chosen to be king for two primary reasons. One, because he was the most handsome man in all of Israel, but also because he was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And so when a giant walks down into the valley and challenges the nation of Israel, you look to your tallest guy. And in this case... Israel's tallest guy was their king. And see, the army, they had placed their hope in their king, just like they should have done. And and when they placed their hope in their king, they waited for their king to come out of his tent and to challenge Goliath, because that's where their hope lay. And see, that's where this story begins to intersect with our story. Because what's true of you and what's true of me is that we place our hope in what we depend on. We place our hope in who we depend on. That's just what we do. And when the person we hope in disappoints us, then oftentimes the measure of our hope becomes the measure of our disdain. Certainly it becomes the measure of our disappointment and our anger. Whenever we place our hope in someone, that is what we depend on. And see, this is why you and I, this is why we actually have the potential 
to, to, to resent those people who are closest to us in our lives the most. A brother, or a sister perhaps, maybe your parents, maybe a spouse. Because per your, perhaps your hope was or still is in them. Wherever we place our hope, that is who or what we depend on. And see, notice in the story that Saul, he is conspicuously absent, isn't he? And his credibility slipped away as day after day went by without him responding to these taunts from Goliath. And as Saul's credibility waned, the army's hope died. We always place our hope in who or what we depend on. And see, this stalemate that existed between the armies of Israel and the Philistines, it really illustrated the point that God never actually wanted Israel to have a king in the first place. God wanted Israel to actually look to him to be their king because God knew what all of us know is that wherever you place your trust, that's just where you naturally place your hope. And God wanted Israel to place their hope in him. And see, that's where this story goes from being 3,000 years old to being three minutes old. Because maybe for you in your life right now, maybe there is something in your life that is screaming at you, something that is taunting at you, something that has reared its ugly head again in your life. Something in a son, something in a daughter perhaps, maybe in a spouse, maybe it's in your own life, it's in your business, it's in your family. And and you've seen it coming and it's just sitting there staring at you, getting bigger and bigger and bigger and it feels like all that it's left in its wake is fear and dread and dismay in your heart. And you can actually hear its voice taunting you, telling you you're not going to make it, that there's no way that you're going to get through it this time, that this is where it all falls apart, that there is no one who is with you, that you will never recover from any of this, that something bad is going to happen to you, that the worst thing that could happen will happen, that it will never work out, that there is no way to actually get through this, that God has abandoned you, that nobody cares about you. That is what fear sounds like. And it is absolutely amazing how many people sitting in this room right now live life with that soundtrack playing in the background of their life every single day. And make no mistake, that is exactly the soundtrack that was playing in the background of the life of the nation of Israel as for 40 days Goliath taunted Saul, and he taunted them morning and evening. And right here, I want us to just pause for just a moment, and I want us to notice this is the the first of three big truths that we're going to kind of come face to face with throughout the course of this story. And one of the downsides, the reason why this is so important, because one of the downsides of this story being so familiar to so many of us is that oftentimes people, right, well-meaning, good-intentioned people, oftentimes they kind of rip this story out of its context. And when that happens, we lose both the truth, but we also lose the power that's found in the Scripture. And see, this first truth is this, that just because you are a follower of Jesus, that does not mean that you are not in a fight. 
See, if somebody has sold you on some version of faith that says all you need to do is put your faith in Jesus and everything's going to be fine, everything's going to turn out the way you want it to be, life is going to go smooth for you, there will be no obstacles for you, everything will work out and be exactly what you hope for it to be, that is not how life happened for the nation of Israel. And yes, God brought them out of slavery in Egypt and into freedom. And yes, God brought them through the Jordan River and onto dry land. And yes, God even brought them into the promised land. But see, as you read through the history of the nation of Israel, what you discover is that every single day brought another adversary. Every single day brought another opportunity for the nation and the people of Israel to trust that the very same God who was faithful in their past, that he was going to be faithful in their future, despite what it was that they were experiencing in their present. And that is true For every single one of us today as well, just because you are a follower of Jesus does not mean that you are not in a fight. You get a little season, maybe, where it feels like, okay, everything is peaceful and and it seems like everything is going good right now. And then all of a sudden you walk around the corner and there it is. There's this giant staring at you 50 feet tall and you're thinking, where in the world did this come from? Or everything is fine and all of a sudden the phone rings or the text message appears and suddenly there's something standing there staring you in the face, taunting you or your family. See, that is the way it was then and that is the way that it is now. Verse 16 tells us, For 40 days and 40 nights the Philistines came forward and they terrorized the Israelites and Saul and all of Israel were dismayed and terrified. And then David comes along. And David, if you were here with us last week, we discovered David was actually the youngest of a whole bunch of brothers. In fact, we'll find out in just a moment that three of David's older brothers are already there serving in this battle in Saul's army. But when this situation happens with Goliath, David is actually at home tending to his father's sheep because he is a shepherd. And so David's father, Jesse, says to David, I want you to go, I want you to bring some food, some supplies, I want you to go check in on your brothers, and then most importantly, I want you to come back and tell me how everything is going in the battle. Tell me if your brothers are safe or not. And in verse 20, we pick up and we find out that early in the morning, David, he left his flock with a shepherd. He loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines, they were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies. He ran to the battle lines and greeted his brothers as he was talking with them. Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, he stepped out from his lines, shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. So David, he actually hears Goliath's little speech. It's the same speech Goliath has been giving day after day, morning and night for the last 40 days. But instead of David being dismayed and terrified, we discover that David was actually offended. And David begins to ask some questions. And even the questions that David begins to ask tell us that there's something different about this 15-year-old boy. He actually sees this situation differently than anybody else who's around him. He sees it with a clarity that nobody else in the army has. He says this in verse 26. David asked the men who were standing near him, what will be done? 
for the man who kills this Philistine and who removes this disgrace from Israel. And these soldiers are looking at David and they're like, why in the world are you asking this question? I mean, you're just a boy. What do you mean what will be done? Remove this disgrace from Israel? That's not what we see. What we see is a nine and a half foot tall giant named Goliath who has tremendous experience. Well, what we see, or I should say what we haven't seen, is our king because he is our giant. And we expected him to go out and fight this giant, but he is nowhere to be found. Disgrace from Israel, what are you talking about? And David's like, yeah, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? In other words, what David realized is that Goliath, he wasn't Saul's problem, and Goliath, he wasn't even the armies of Israel's problem. What David realized is that Goliath was God's problem. And see, David was exactly right, because God had established the nation of Israel to actually be a light to the surrounding nations, so that other people and other nations could actually learn and understand exactly who God was And what it is that God was truly like. And David remembered that God had always been faithful to Israel in its past, even when Israel had very good reason to be afraid. And see, David saw this problem not simply as a point of fear, but David saw this problem as God's problem. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, again, let's just pause here for a moment because I want to ask you a question. If you are here this morning and you would say that you are a follower of Jesus, I want to ask you just one simple question. And no, you're not perfect, but you're following. And no, you don't have all the answers to all the different questions that life has presented you with, but you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, and you believe that Jesus has done what he said he's done. Let me ask you a question. Who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? Because, see, the Scriptures are incredibly clear about this. They say that you belong to God. They actually say that you were purchased by God for a price. And do you know what determines your value? In fact, do you know what determines the value of anything? The value of something is always determined by the price somebody else is actually willing to pay for it. And the scriptures say that you are so valuable to your heavenly father, so important to him, that he was actually willing to give up his one and only son so that you could belong to him. That's how valuable that you are to God. That means that you are his prized possession. And see, all throughout the scriptures, as we read the scriptures, we discover the incredible lengths that God is actually willing to go to to keep and to hold on to what it is that belongs to him. And we also see that there is an enemy who goes after and who attacks exactly what and who it is that God loves, what and who it is that belongs to God. And see, the truth is, just like as an earthly father, I can become incredibly defensive when my own kids are threatened. In the very same way, your heavenly father, who paid an incredibly high price just so that you could call him father. In that very same way, he also gets a little bit defensive and he says, listen, if there is something that threatens you, then it threatens me. If there's a problem that you're facing, then there's a problem that I'm facing. If there's something that you have to deal with in life, then I'm going to deal with it in life with you. 
Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, if you're here today, and if you're honest and you would say that you are not a follower of Jesus, then I want to say something to you as well. Um, Getting ready for this message this week, uh, I I read a bunch of different books. One of the books I read was actually this book um, right here. It's called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. I should have put it up on the screen. I apologize, but that's the name of the book. It was written by a woman by the name of Dr. Susan Jeffers. She's a Ph.D. And what I read, what I discovered in reading this book is that this book is literally the standard textbook in the secular community for dealing with fear and anxiety in our, in our lives and in our world today. Um, it's literally sold millions and millions and millions of copies. And if you are here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, the reason why I want to tell you about this is because I think the truth is this is probably your best shot. I mean, this is, I'm not being facetious here. This is probably the, the best thing that you can do to deal with the fear and the anxiety that you face. And this is what Dr. Susan Jeffers says in this book. I'm just going to put some quotes from her book up on the screen. She says this, At the bottom of every one of your fears is simply the fear that you cannot handle whatever it is that life may bring you. And again, that's true. I think we would all say, whether we're followers of Jesus or not, I think we would all say that that is true. That is what is at the bottom of every single one of our fears. This next thing she says is this. So, If that's true, then if you knew that you could actually handle anything that came your way, what is it that you could possibly have to fear? And again, that's true, right? If you knew that you could handle anything, absolutely anything that could come your way, that life could throw at you, I mean, you would not be afraid of anything, would you? You would be fearless. So here's the solution. This is what she says. This is, again, in her book. All you have to do to diminish your fear is simply to develop more trust in your own ability to handle whatever it is that comes your way. In other words, if you are not a follower of Jesus, then you've got to look in the mirror every single morning as you face fearful circumstances. You've got to look in that mirror and you've got to say to yourself, listen, I can handle this. Because if you are convinced that you can handle whatever it is that you're facing in life right now, if you believe that's true, then according to Dr. Susan Jeffers, you have absolutely nothing to fear. Now, here's what I would say to you today. If you should ever come to the point in your life where you look in the mirror and you are honest with yourself and you say to yourself, I don't know that I can handle this. I mean, I've handled a lot of things in my past, but this one, I I don't know that I can handle this. I mean, I've handled this for a long, long time, but I don't know that I can handle this anymore. I've dealt with a lot of garbage in my past. There's a lot of things that I've gotten through, but I am absolutely scared to death of what it is that's in front of me right now. I am terrified about what this means for my family, what it means for me personally, what it means for my kids. If you should ever get to the point where that's the honest conversation that you have with yourself as you stare in the mirror that morning, then the good news is I have some great news for you today. You are a perfect candidate for the grace of God to come into your life 
Because Jesus Christ stands at you and he says to you today these words. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. In other words, if you know that you cannot handle on your own what it is that you are facing right now, Jesus actually invites you to come to him and he says that he will handle it for you. Let's finish the story. Saul actually hears word that perhaps there is somebody who has volunteered for what undoubtedly is going to be their last day on this planet. So naturally, King Saul wants to meet this person face to face. And so he calls David in to speak to him. He doesn't know who David is, doesn't know if he's in the army or not. He calls David in and David looks at Saul and says to him in verse 32, Let no one lose heart. On account of this Philistine, your servant will go and fight him. But Saul replied, you are not able to go out and fight against this Philistine. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. Saul discovers that David's no soldier. He's just a shepherd. He's just the kid brother of three guys who are already serving in Saul's army. And see, that brings us to the second big truth that I want you to hear today, which is just simply this. You are not David. None of you are David in the story of David and Goliath. And listen, I know that some of you for years have been told, wait a minute, that you've been told that I am David. I'm telling you today, you are not David in the story of David and Goliath. And for some of you, you can actually remember back to when you were told that. You were told in Sunday school, in vacation Bible school, you were told at a camp that you were David. And you even probably remember what it is that they said to you because they told you that if David, if this little scrawny 15-year-old shepherd boy, if he can walk into that valley and defeat this nine-and-a-half-foot-tall giant named Goliath, then surely you, right, even, even you, even all 75 pounds soaking wet of you, even you can walk into your life and defeat the giants that you face. And so you left that retreat, you left vacation Bible school, you left that Sunday school class determined to go slay every bully on the playground, to go beat every giant that you faced in your life. But see, the reality is this. Here we are today. For some of us, 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, here we are today, 25, 35, 55, 75 And for some of us, the very same giant that was staring us in the face in middle school, in middle school, is still standing there staring you in the face today. Because, see, the truth is your heavenly Father has never asked you to buck up, suck it up, or power up. The only thing that God has ever asked you to do is to look up and see that there is already a hero in this story, and the hero is not you. There is a hero in the scriptures from beginning to end, because this is the story of a hero. From beginning to end, this is the story of a hero God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in this story of God, it is Jesus who is at the front and center of the story. He is the hero of the story from beginning to end. And see, the story of David and Goliath was never meant to be a story that says you've got to go out and find the courage to go face and slay all the giants that are in your life. That is not what the scriptures teach. That is certainly not what we preach. 
What we preach is that Jesus came from heaven to earth to walk into every single one of our lives and every single one of our relationships and to walk down into every single valley that you will ever face throughout your entire lifetime. And he will conquer every giant that you ever face. Jesus is the hero of this story and Jesus is the hero of your story. And what I love about this story is that that truth is front and center right in the text for every single one of us to see. Because right after Saul gets done telling David that he's no soldier, David responds to Saul. And for those of you who are parents of teenagers, tell me that this does not sound like your 15-year-old in verse 34. Because David says to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried it off, I, I came and carried a sheep from the flock, you know, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it and killed it, you know, like all in a day's work, no big deal. Your servant, he has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine, he will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Now, hiding underneath what sounds like an awful lot of arrogance to us, which sounds like to us, no, David is the hero of the story, is actually what David recognized, which is actually the truth. This is the part we miss in verse 37. David tells Saul, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will be the one who delivers me from the hand of the Philistine. See, the truth is, David didn't even think that he was David in the story of David and Goliath. David knew that God was the one who was working through him to do what only God could do. And see, we all know, or at least we think we know how it is that this story ends, because we know that David kills Goliath, and we think that's the end of the story, but it's really not the end of the story. Because in verse 54, we learn that David, actually, after he kills Goliath, he takes Goliath's head... And he carries it back with him all the way to Jerusalem, which is about 20 miles away from this valley of Allah. And when David gets to Jerusalem, he puts Goliath's head on display so that everybody can see what it is that God has done. And in the very same way that a little shepherd boy named David, the son of Jesse, The same way that he came into the valley of Allah to defeat Goliath, there is another shepherd boy who came from Bethlehem, and his name is Jesus. And he came to defeat the power of sin and death and the destruction and the fear that they cause in your life. And what he did was put on display in Jerusalem so that everybody could see what it is that God had done in his life and his death and in his resurrection. One more truth. I told you there were three. See, the truth is, your Heavenly Father has not left you defenseless in whatever fight it is that you're facing right now. Your Heavenly Father has actually given to you a weapon, and it's not a sling, and it's not five smooth stones either. The weapon's actually found in the text. Back in verse 45, when David encounters Goliath face to face, 
And he says, to, David says to Goliath, he says, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. See, your heavenly Father has given you a weapon in this fight, and the way that you learn how to use this weapon is to learn how to worship. David actually wrote Psalm 16 during this very time period in his life, and he says these words. He says, Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I have set the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, and my body will also rest Secure. The antidote to the fear that you are facing is not courage. The antidote to your fear is faith. I have always set the Lord before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. See, what you and I, what we cannot allow ourselves to do is to simply praise the giant that's staring at us the giant who is taunting us. You have got to learn how to set something else before you that is bigger than your giant. And I'm not telling you to ignore it. I'm not telling you to pretend it's not real. I would never say that to you. That's not true. When David walked into that valley, he didn't say, I don't see the giant. What he said was, I see the giant, but I also see someone who is bigger than the giant. I see the one who is greater than the giant. That is what every single one of us who struggle with fear and anxiety, that is what we need to learn how to do. Set something before us that is greater than what causes us to fear. Because worship and worry, they cannot occupy the same place and the same point in time in your life. One will always displace the other. You want worry out of your mouth. You want worry out of your life. Learn how to worship God, it will displace the enemy. Your Heavenly Father, He has given you everything that you need for this fight. And that is the name of the Lord Almighty. And His name is Jesus, and we worship Him. Let me pray for you today. Heavenly Father, you know how much easier it is to just talk about this than it is for any one of us, me included, to actually live through it. And Father, for the person who is here right now and who is like me and who has struggled time and time again in life with fear and anxiety, Father, I I pray that you would give to all of us the faith that we need to remember that we actually belong to you, to remind us that you fight for us, And Father, my prayer is that you would teach us, all of us, how to worship you in the midst of the battles and the fears that we face each day. Father, forgive us for those times in our lives when we've had more faith in the giant standing in front of us than we did in you, the one who has fought and died for us. Hear us as we personally and silently confess our sin to you. The good news of the gospel is that because you do have a Savior, because that Savior has fought, he has died, 
and he has been resurrected. The good news of the gospel is that your sin, it is truly forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.